from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Well, this is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome today. We're really talking long distance. Despite our social distancing, we're actually doing some continental distancing. I'm in Los Angeles, and my guest today, Paul Spires, is in Newport Pagnell, which for those of you who are Aston Martin lovers will know that that is really the true historic home of one of the world's greatest automotive marks. Paul, welcome. Thank you, and good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are. (laughs) Well, it's cocktail time for you, and here it's barely time for lunch, but it's just the way the world works, especially when we're working with international guests. Thank you for taking time out, Paul, as you're a busy guy, because you're the president of Aston Martin Works. You've been with them since 2012. That's a considerable amount of time, considering they were essentially only opened about that time. Why don't you tell us about Aston Martin Works and what it really means? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, Aston Martin Works has been around for an awful long time. So David Brown actually moved the works in its entirety up to Newport Pagmal in 1955 from Feltham in Middlesex. And, and kind of the works brand, if you like, has kind of remained at Newport Pagmal, even though our production of our motor vehicles have moved to Gaydon and also now to San Athens, where we're going to build DBX. But Aston Martin Works really is the heritage home of Aston Martin. And the works is very much kind of iconic part of of the whole Aston Martin group. Look after all the heritage of the cars here, as well as obviously having a dealership. So if you live in the UK, you can actually come to us to buy new, used and heritage motor vehicles. It's a bit of a one-stop shop for anything to do with Aston Martin here. Well, it's certainly unique. There are not many marks that would embrace their heritage in the way that Aston Martin has. I know certainly a few of the more esoteric ones, Morgan and in their own way, Bentley and Rolls-Royce. But Aston Martin really is special because you have been custodians of cars that have been long released to the public going back to the beginning. I guess Aston Martin was founded in 1913. But when we start thinking about, quote unquote, modern Aston Martins, they're essentially all post-war cars starting with the great DB2s and then on through the famous DB4 and 5 and 6 series of the late 50s and 60s. And those are sort of the stock in trade of Aston Martin Works and, and your Heritage Showroom. I know I had a chance to browse the website recently, and good heavens, it's the best car showroom in the world. Well, I like to think so. I think it's, it's interesting that, that Aston Martin has always looked after its heritage so very, very well. And there's certainly, you know, other manufacturers that have looked at us and the way that we've looked after our heritage and kind of held us up as kind of the leading light on all of this. We're delighted that the buildings like what we call the Olympia building, which is actually our heritage car showroom, that building actually started off life as an aircraft hangar in the 1920s and was moved here just to cover over the wood yard. And we now use it as our heritage showroom and we use it for other things as well. If you look at some of the pictures of things like the On Her Majesty's Secret Service DBS, I mean, that was all filmed actually in our heritage showroom as well. So we are very much an integral part of the big mothership that is Aston Martin Lagonda. 
Well, that's fantastic. I know that on your website, the Olympia Building is quite evocative and really has a sense of history about it, as do, of course, the cars that are there. I mean, it's like an Aston Martin museum. I'm guessing that there are a lot of challenges in keeping some of these cars fit for service. And certainly around the world, there are a lot of noted restoration facilities and shops. But the notion of having the original makers imprimatur on a restoration is something very special indeed probably has a lot to do with the archives that you keep. What does that entail? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's a very interesting point. We do have access to all the original build records for the cars. So quite often we'll have a car that may come in from California that turns up here in blue with red inside. And when we look back through the archive, we actually find out that the car was originally white with purple inside or something along those kind of lines, owned sometimes by some really interesting people from brand new. And a lot of our customers from around the world, they want to have the cars restored back to their original specification because obviously that enhances the value. Absolutely. And plus the fact it's simply the right thing to do. It's the, it's the right thing. It's absolutely the right thing to do. And to send it back home to where the car was born or manufactured, again, is a bit like sending your pet dog or horse to the very best vet in the world to have it looked after. And people want to send these cars back to us. And we've had cars from all over the world that have been you know, handed down from generation to generation where you know it was grandfather's car and the person that now owns it remembers going to their school prom in this car and it was such an integral part of the family that it is literally it is like a member of the family and people want to keep the car in the very very best condition possible and of course the restorations we do here go way way beyond what you would find in a what i call a normal restoration shop and i'm sure in many ways really go far beyond what the cars might have presented as new even understanding that certain methodologies and panel gaps and things have tolerances have changed from the 50s and 60s. That's a very, very good point. You're absolutely right. You know, when we look at the restorations that we produce today and the quality of the fit, the finish of the finished article, it it is, to be fair, way beyond where the cars were in the 1950s and 60s. And we do employ a lot of modern techniques. Well, you read my mind. The reputation for craftsmanship in the UK, especially when it comes to panel beating, is matched by none except, well, the Italians might argue with you. But certainly mastering the English wheel is an art and a lost art. And I guess I gather you've got some craftsmen there who are masters of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a fantastic mix of people in the panel shop now. From apprentices, we have four apprentices in the panel shop who are now learning those skills. So we're actually transitioning the skills to a new generation. So in the next 40, 50, 100 years, you know, you'll still be able to come back to Aston Martin Works and have your DB5 restored in the traditional way. And it's really key and it's really, really important to me and the business here that we transition these skills in the panel shop, in the trim shop, in paint, onto this next generation so that we can ensure the future and the succession of this business going forward. Fantastic. Well, that is exciting stuff. Let's get back into the restoration of one of the old cars, though. I noticed something quite interesting on your website. It talked about a fixed price restoration, which, as many of our listeners who have restored cars know, it can truly be a bottomless pit, a voracious beast that needs to be fed over and over and over again. And the notion of having a fixed end in sight must be a very appealing concept for your customers. 
Yeah, it felt to us like exactly the right thing to do for the simple reason what we don't want to do is keep going back with more bad news. <laughs> and inevitably, as you know, with restorations, you, you unpick a bit, you find a bit more and you go, oh dear, and you unpick a bit more and it's even worse. What we looked at was the actual process and the time that we employ in doing a full restoration. And the actual process we go through every single car is exactly the same. And so when we take the body off of the chassis, whether the actual chassis itself has got a little bit more corrosion or a little bit less corrosion, to be honest, they're all within a smidge of each other, whereby it's only a few hours difference. And the process of building all new body panels and trimming and painting and putting the electrical architecture in the car, rebuilding the engine and the gearbox, all that is a kind of pretty standard cycle time. So we were able to basically take a mean average and say, right, that is the price of a full restoration. And that way, everybody knows that the full restoration they get is a complete restoration, full body off, and you will not get a better restoration on Aston Martin anywhere else in the world. That is fascinating. So would you talk about a frame off or body off a nut and bolt restoration? That's what yeah. someone gets from Aston Martin. On the odd occasion that one of our restored cars comes onto the open market, it does command quite a premium. Because we have a waiting list for restorations and because the restoration takes almost two years to complete, there are people out there that actually don't want to wait and they will pay a premium for an Aston Martin works restored car. How many folks are actually employed there in the restoration group? So the, the restoration part of the business is actually integrated into the main Aston Martin Works business. So we deploy the labor in a very agile, a very efficient manner. But normally, I would say that a restoration involves about 60 people from within the business. Unlike most restoration shops, we have specialists in every department. So we have panel beaters, we have trimmers, we have electrical architecture people, we have body fitters, etc. What you don't get is you don't get people doing a bit of everything. These guys are really, really highly skilled. They are literally the best in the business so the guys that do the trim because they have our own trim shop on site which again is very unusual for a restoration business so let me ask you a question for instance paul if i've got a silver birch and black db5 and i decide i want to paint it a sunshine yellow with a purple interior will you do that Yes, of course I will. I am a commercial person. <laughs> you might you might have gently dissuade me if possible. Well, we, we, we'd certainly have a very long and in-depth <laughs> conversation about whether it's the right thing to do or not. You know, we do have to do this on occasions. And some people say to me, you know, how on earth can you do this? It's complete vandalism. And I say, well, quite simply, <laughs> at some point in time, it'll come back to Newport Pag. It'll be turned back into being silver birch with black. Ooh, you know, so go. if you like, we get two bites at the cherry that way. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's great. But in terms of accurate and period-correct restorations, you typically, I would imagine, take a fairly conservative track with your cars. Yeah, I mean, inevitably at the moment, a lot of people want to restore the cars back to original because, again, that enhances the value. And I mean, when you talk about the detail we go into, I mean, we even have Connolly Brothers actually create the original hides from the original color scheme. So we use Vomol hide within the restoration car. So not only do the cars look right, but they actually smell right, which is also incredibly important. That's fantastic. And I was going to ask you about that, mm -hmm. whether or not the Connolly hides were available. Yeah. And you're right. Nothing quite smells like a British interior. Maybe it is the hides or the glues or, or good heavens knows what, but they are absolutely unique. It's a completely different tanning process. So as you're probably aware, you know, a modern leather in a modern motor car has to be, you know, has demisting properties. It has fire retardant properties, etc. And the old leathers, you know, didn't have that, which is why it smells like leather and not like glue. To so <laughs> that again is, when you think about it, when you open the door and you get into an Aston Martin, you know, whether it's a DB4 or DB5, it absolutely assaults the senses. You know, it assaults all three senses, the look, the smell, and then you fire it up, the sound of the whole 
old car. It's a full aura experience. There's no doubt about that. There's something about that straight six engine. What a big, monstrous lump that thing is. I mean, there's no straight six quite like it. And it certainly endured for a great amount of time and established a great reputation, not just on the road, but on the track as well. Absolutely. And of course, we're now remanufacturing that engine again for the continuation cars for DB4 GT and Zagato and now for DB5 Goldfinger. Fantastic. Oh, I want to talk all about those. You know, maybe we should jump into that. Let's talk about your continuation cars. Certainly, the DB4 GT is a great car in the history of Aston Martin. I had a chance to drive one of those. Oh, fantastic. On an occasion, and I've actually driven two of the DB4 GT Zagatos. Yeah. No two seem to be alike. And boy, you talk about handling a priceless artifact. It mm. really almost sends shivers up my spine to get behind <laughs> one of those things. Yes. And the fact that you're actually able to create a brand new DB4 GT with metal that was forged in 2021. That's an amazing thing. It's quite a journey. When we started on DB4 GT, as I said before, we had this wonderful idea of restarting production at Newport Pagnell. Uh, you know, and clearly we couldn't do a modern car because it's a relatively small site and modern cars are done at Gaiden in a very, very efficient way. But to kind of reset the clock, to go back to one of the most iconic cars to come out of Newport Pagnell, you know, DB4 GT. And, and you know, we mustn't forget that the late Sir Sterling Moss drove the car in its very first race and won at Silverstone with it. That's right. It's a true icon. It was a Ferrari 250 competitor. It was absolutely a remarkable absolutely. thing. Explain to our listeners what makes the GT a little different than the standard DB4. Okay, so so from the standard DB4, it's shorter. Obviously, we did the lightweight cars, which was what our 25 continuation cars were as well. So they had aluminium floors, very thin gauge aluminium, and it has a twin plug head and Weber carburetors that increases the performance. So you're absolutely right. It was a car to go and combat the rise of, of Ferrari in GT racing at, at the time. It's a car that, because there are only 75 of the original cars, became a real icon and many of the kind of the great names in automotive and also in in show business owned db4 gts i mean it was one of peter sellers's most favored cars and he owned it for, for many many years he had some great cars indeed he sure did the serial numbers are important with those cars mm. and you're working off a group of essentially unused vins is that correct Well, what happened was for homologation purposes, we should have actually built 100 DB4 Mm -hmm. GTs, which we actually only built 75, I guess, because we we probably struggled to sell them because they're quite expensive at the time. And if you group together the Zagatos and the project cars and and a few other bits and pieces, it actually comes to 100 cars. But we we kind of wanted to make these 25 GTs that really should have been made in the first place. And we, Mm -hmm. we continued the chassis numbers from the last car. And I'm pleased to say that actually in your country, the USA... They absolutely took this car to their hearts. We probably could have sold all 25 cars into the U.S. market alone because you guys seem to really love new old cars. <laughs> Being <laughs> well, able to have your own GT built from, from scratch, you know. Well, it would be a dream come true for anyone who had the resources to actually afford and be fortunate enough to acquire one. I would imagine the ultimate dream would be to have the original, an example of the original, and then to have a brand new example sitting side by side. And there may be one or two customers around the world that have done exactly that. <laughs> Without putting too fine a point on it, what was the production cycle like? I presume all of the cars are sold and in happy homes. How do you sell a car like that? I mean, is there a fixed price? Is there a waiting list? How does it work? Yeah, so we had a price and then we had an options list. I mean, the the price of the car was £1.5 million plus taxes plus options. So as you imagine, most of the cars are kind of closer to £2 million. 
And that's about half the price of an original, is that correct? Yes, it is. Yes, <laughs> yes. But obviously, when we did DB4GT, you have to understand this was a real leap of faith on Aston Martin's part because nobody at that point in time had ever built 25 continuation cars, and certainly nobody ever sold a continuation car at this price point either. That's right. So we were really kind of going at this in a major way. And we put a terrific resource behind this program as well. So we took some really great engineers from Gaiden. You know, I led that team and we used a huge amount of digital scanning techniques. We found cars that were in bits. We scanned lots of chassis. We found lots of anomalies. We pulled out over 500 original drawings as well from our archive. And we kind of overlaid that and we found anomalies all the way through where we found that actually the chassis had been changed on production, but the drawings had never actually been updated and, you know, all, all that kind of things. And, and, uh, and not at all unusual for small volume manufacturers of the period, no, Italy it, or, or Germany, and it's, it's all the same. I mean, these were essentially absolutely. works of progress. Yeah. And, you know, we think we built 75 cars over a relatively long period of time. And there's about seven or eight different versions of DB4 GT because they kind of built them in a slightly ad hoc basis. So, when we built DB4 GT, we, we kind of wanted the iconic model. We went to the earliest body shape with the large scoop and the cathedral rear lights. We found silly things like all the chassis we scanned had a slight left-hand kink in them, which means that probably the jig they were made on actually wasn't true in the first instance. So we took that out. We actually had the chassis manufactured off-site by a race car company, and they worked to an incredibly high tolerance that I actually set for them. So high that actually it's a higher tolerance than we have on a modern production car. And it's actually about the same as a race car. So that's a kind of in-depth analysis that we went to. And when we set down this rigid set of what the chassis had to meet, the engineer looked at me and laughed. And I said, I'm not joking, gentlemen. This has to be the very best DB4 GT Aston Martin ever made. And I'm pleased to say I think we actually achieved that. And we surpassed most of our customers' expectations. If I didn't know any better, I'd say that you'd underpriced the car by about two-thirds. I can't imagine it's a money-making proposition, but certainly one that's quite laudable. And I imagine years from now, there'll be a lot of people very thankful that these cars exist. I mean, we have to remember, the you know, until the 21st century, I mean, these were just sort of old used cars. It was possible for a person to buy a DB4, a DB5, you know, back in the 70s or 80s. And he was probably a guy who did all of his own work. In a lot of ways, these cars are lucky to have survived in many ways. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I probably shouldn't give this away, but I've been involved with Aston Martin for 37 years. And my first Aston Martin, the way I got into the business, I bought one and I used to fix it myself in my garage. And I paid 1500 pounds my db6 in 1980 whatever year it was 80 something and it was a little business and literally because i was fixing my cars my garage people from the owners club used to ask me to fix their cars and sell their cars for them and i kind of fell into it slightly by mistake but it's a wonderful mistake to have happened to me i have to say well that's fantastic that's fantastic so paul now that the db4 gt continuation series is essentially put to bed what's on the plate what are you working on now what continuation models so after we finished with the standard body GT, we then did the 19 DB4 GT Zagatos as a celebration of Zagato's 100 years of being in business. And again, what an iconic car. And we shouldn't talk about money, but that car is the world's most expensive production motor car. And it is an absolute thing of beauty. And as you said, you've had the opportunity to drive a couple of them. I had a fantastic opportunity last year to give the DB4 GT Zagato its competition debut at Paul Ricard, which was a very scary experience because you're racing amongst things like 250 GT, 250 GTOs, bits, etc. Yes. Priceless motor cars, <laughs> driving on behalf of Aston Martin works. So that was a real baptism of fire, not just for the car, but for me as well. 
Well, that's fantastic. What a great experience. Obviously, your skill behind the wheel allowed you to exercise that flawlessly. I'm not sure about the flawlessly, but I bought it home in one piece anyway. That's all that anyone could ever ask. With the Zagatos, there were 19 made, and I guess no two, genuinely no two were alike. Absolutely right. When yeah. you did your continuation series, which exact serial number or which car did you use as a reference point? So we actually digitally scanned a couple of cars. Obviously, they're quite difficult to hold of these cars in the first place. And that information we gave to Marek Reichman, our chief creation officer, and to Andrea Zagato. And they basically sat down and wanted to make the most beautiful DB4 GT Zagato that had ever been made. So Andrea had a hand in this then? In, in yeah, action. absolutely. And they want to make it obviously symmetrical, which most cars aren't. <laughs> which no Zagato ever was. No, exactly. So we end up with this, this incredibly beautiful body, to be honest. I mean, it, it really is just i mean i've got one in fact the race cars here with me at the moment and i was looking at it about 10 minutes before we came on air and it is just such a stunning car i mean it's got to be in the top three or four designs ever in the world for a motor car you get no argument there no argument at all when terms like achingly beautiful are quite overused but in this case it's absolutely true now you'd mentioned goldfinger i mean my god i hear shirley uh -huh. bassey in the background what about that is there a db5 underway yeah, for sure. So to celebrate the 25 cars in the Bond film series, we're doing 25 DB5 Goldfinger cars. So <laughs> it's such a cool cool thing. I mean, you know, it, every little boy wants to have a big Corgi car, and this is a big Corgi car. So it's got the machine guns, and it's got the smoke, and it ejects water out the back, and it's got revolving number plates. And obviously, they're all in silver birch with the dark gray interior. Does it have a big telephone? and yeah, uh, a telephone in the door and the bullet-resistant shield that comes up through the boot lid as well and the navigation system, the center console. So it's just fantastic, actually. I, I love it. Is there an operating ejector seat or is that only in theory? <laughs> no, we, we tried to package it for mother-in-laws and things like that, but unfortunately, <laughs> we couldn't quite get it to package. And we did actually, funnily enough, we did put it through the CAD system. Where the hole is in the roof, you actually couldn't get anybody through it because of the way that the shape of the roof is. <laughs> so uh, we, we decided we couldn't do that. But we have put a hatch there. So there is actually a hatch that you can take out so it does open up. Oh, that's remarkable. That is hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. One very special car I know, obviously, from a motorsport competition history, was the DB3S that competed in the Millimillion, number five. That came back to your facility for a full restoration. Is that right? Yes, it did. Yes, we restored that for a Swiss customer over quite a long period. Interesting story. The gentleman had tried to do the Mille Media retrospectively a, a number of times and failed. So he actually brought it back to us to restore it. And I'm very pleased to say on the first attempt after we restored the car, the car ran faultlessly throughout the whole uh, Mille Media retrospectively, and he was delighted. That's certainly a testament to the quality of work, and I suspect that most Millimilia participants wish that their cars would perform flawlessly throughout the entire ordeal. <laughs> yes, exactly. it's, it's not an easy ask, as they say. <laughs> well, uh, let's take a break, Paul, and come back and talk about some of the more recent cars in Aston Martin's history, and then talk about your history with Aston Martin's and automobiles in general. A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. 
wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find one. The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Well, this is Robert Ross, and we're back with Cars That Matter, and my guest from the UK, Paul Spires. Paul is the president of Aston Martin Works, and what a works it is. Paul, we've been talking about some of the earlier cars. Let's talk about what happened after the last DB6 Mark II Vantage. Very interesting series of cars came to the fore, and those were the Aston Martin V8s. Yeah, I mean, Aston Martin V8 is very close to my heart because it was the second Aston Martin that I personally owned. And my mother actually had one as well. Good heavens! That's so, <laughs> yes, yeah. So my mother had a V8 Aston Martin for many, many years, probably about 10 years now, I think. And she loved it and used it as a daily transport. So we're a bit of an Aston family, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, that car stayed in production right up until 1989 when it was then replaced by the Virage. Obviously, it morphed its way through the 70s and 80s. But again, what an iconic car. You know, William Towns really excelled when he designed it. Some of your listeners may think it looks a little bit like a Mustang. Uh, I actually couldn't, <laughs> couldn't comment on that. Well, it has been called the English Mustang, but that would be somewhat unfair. I think it was the, <laughs> that the exquisite fastback and the little bit of the cam tail that sort of gave it that moniker. But the design is really really endured it has i think in a lot of ways they look better today than they, they i totally agree they totally agree with you. i was driving a vantage actually a couple of days ago and it is such a stunning car you know when you think that that car when it was the dbs v8 roger moore drove it in the series called the persuaders i'm not sure if you had that in the usa a bahama gold car again that kind of made people like me when i was a child watching that program you know we all wanted to be roger moore and drive that gold colored dbs and then obviously it also featured in one of the bond films in uh, living daylights with the uh, Timothy Dalton. That's right. Boy, Roger Moore got some good cars. I remember, I think he was in a film with a Lamborghini as Lero and just all over the map. But certainly the Astons were the stock and trade, and it was great to see the car have a role in, in a number of films from the era. I think a lot of it is down to the engine. I mean, it was really a, a remarkable 4-cam V8 that produced some serious power for its day. Yeah. Yeah, crack, cracking engine. Yeah, when you think it, well, it started off as a five liter engine that was put into the Lolas and run at Le Mans. And then after that, it was graded to 5.3 liters. And of course, latterly in its, in its life, you know, Weird Aston Martin Works here did a 6.3 liter version of that uh, right. engine. And I actually did some of the development driving on the Virage 6.3 litre car, which was a pretty scary beast to drive around in during the, the early days of that car kind of coming into being. But yeah, it's a great, great engine. Obviously, then it, it developed into the four-valve engine in Virage, which uh, which had the heads that were designed by, by Callaway in the USA. That is a beautiful car. Beautiful cars. And occasionally you'll see one on the market. I think there are a couple on your website in your Heritage showroom, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we do. I think we've got three at the moment. Two standard cars, which are 550 horsepower, and one Le Mans. Well, it's great to see those cars getting the attention that they deserve and ultimately becoming the kinds of collectibles that some of the older Aston Martins have become. Paul, with all this talk about Aston Martin, there is another name that's always sort of gone along with the mark, odd bedfellows in many ways, and in some ways not, and that's Lagonda. Can mm. you tell us about Lagonda and whether or not uh, Aston Martin has some involvement with those old cars? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we see lots of Lagondas. It's one of those cars that really does come back home quite regularly to us from all over the world, mainly, I think, because most people don't know how to look after them and service and repair them, because in their day, they were quite complex. It's a wonderful car. I mean, I, I, again, I hate to say it, but I'm rather fortunate. I've, I've owned a couple of them myself personally. They're an amazing car to drive. Very different to the V8 Coupe, because all the suspension was very, very different. And you do feel incredibly special when you drive a Lagonda. Well, there's certainly nothing that looks like them. That's no. One of the most remarkable grand touring sedans ever designed. Yeah, and it was in many ways the car that broke Aston Martin, also saved Aston Martin. You know, in 1976, for Aston Martin at Newport Pagnell to manufacture this state-of-the-art limousine that was way beyond anything anybody else was building at the time. You look at the contemporary Rolls-Royce of its day, it was nothing like a Lagonda. You know, That's it was right. Relatively old-fashioned compared to Lagonda. So Aston Martin invested almost every penny they had into Lagonda. And of course, in the early 1980s, when the V8 range of cars wasn't selling quite so well, Lagonda really came into its own. And a lot of those cars are sold also into the USA and into the Middle East, where they became, again, quite a collectible and iconic car. I know we certainly see a number of them here in California. There are a few stalwart collectors. I know that car was plagued by a very complicated instrument panel, if I'm not mistaken. Have you folks endeavored to address that? Yes, we have. So there's three different types of dashboard. There's the original dashboard, which had kind of red instruments. It looks like an old Texas Instruments calculator. <laughs> um, it's one of those things that gives you kind of approximations more than accurate information. But again, when you drive it at night, it's like being on Star Trek. It's quite an amazing car at night to drive. I love those early dashboards because they're just so of their period, you know, of the 1970s. That's right, like a digital watch. Exactly. And then yeah, it's just like an old digital watch. It's exactly what it's like. And then, of course, we went to the three cathode ray tube dashboard, which was like having three television screens. They work at a very, very high voltage. They're, very, they're quite dangerous to work on those cars. And I was driving one of those the other days, and I completely forgotten that when you get low on fuel, that it has a voice that comes through telling you you're low on fuel. And it scared the living daylights out of me. Because I, was, <laughs> I was driving it at, at night, and all of a sudden this voice told me, and it was an American voice, fun enough, and I, it's probably been lifted from an aircraft, you know, low fuel, low fuel. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, it's quite amazing. <laughs> well, I certainly didn't know that. That's fantastic. And then, obviously, we had the very late dashboard cars, you know, which were kind of a green. They're a bit more robust than the early cars. And then for some cars that live in kind of very odd parts of the world where you don't have a service dealer, we don't see them very often. We have actually converted some of those cars to analog instruments. Back to analog, yeah. Yeah, like on the V8s of their days. And that, again, gives it a more robust feel. But obviously, it does take away that kind of lovely Star Trek-type feel of the car inside. What is the future of collector cars? Not just Aston Martins necessarily, but collector cars in general. Are we seeing a new type of collector? Are you dealing with new types of people? What kinds of Aston Martins are attracting attention? It's an interesting point. Somebody phoned me earlier on this morning and said to me, what's happening in the classic car market? And I have to say at the moment, it's actually very buoyant. Mm -hmm. I think when we have times of trouble, people see classic cars in general as safe havens for their cash. And obviously a classic car is a very mobile item that you can buy in the UK and sell in the US or sell in Japan, etc. So it's a very fluid commodity. We are seeing a new type of buyer. We're seeing younger people buying these iconic cars, certainly from an Aston Martin point of view. 
you've got people that you know perhaps fathers or uncles had a db6 they remember the car and they kind of want to have that lovely kind of 60s feel and there's something really nice there's something that gives you a really warm feeling inside that i think everybody's kind of missing at the moment from driving around in a classic car it, and it's about the connelly leather and it's about the if, if it had some wood it's about the wood paneling it's about the the mohair and the the kinds of tactile sensibilities that you just can't get in even the most opulent new rolls royce or bentley no, and, and yeah, there's definitely a really good feel-good factor about driving around in a classic car. And of course, when we get back to hopefully normality, there are some really fantastic events like your Pebble Beach event that people want to be able to drive their classic cars to. You know, in Europe, we've got Le Mans Classic. We should have had Monaco Classic this coming weekend. But there's so many fantastic events that you can actually go and enjoy and be part of it. Goodwood Revival. You know, there, there's just so. I mean, you could almost have your classic car out every weekend, certainly in Europe, at one event or another. There's so much to do with it. No question about it. I, I know in America, before this current situation with the lockdown, people were almost complaining there were too many events, you know, too many concours, too many rallies, too many get-togethers that you just couldn't keep on top of it. But certainly we'll be thankful when we have the opportunity to complain about those things again. <laughs> we sure will. We sure will. Hey, let me ask you a question, Paul. Because you folks over there have chosen to drive on the other side of the road, Cars from the UK pose challenges for people driving in other world markets. What is your feeling about converting left and right-hand drives, and does it really matter? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, we do a huge amount of left-to-right and right-to-left conversions on cars because, as I said, you know, Aston Martin's heritage cars are a global commodity. And a car can quite literally get, travel around the world. I mean, my very first DB6 turned up in Canada a few years ago. Is that right? Yeah, so they do move around the world. Obviously, the VIN numbers always show the L or the R at the end of them to denote whether it's left-hand drive original, right-hand drive original. But I always say to customers, if you find the car that is perfect, that is absolutely fits the bill that what you want, but the steering wheel's on the wrong side, have it converted. Because the chances are you will spend the next five or six years trying to find that car in left-hand drive or right-hand. So you, you should bite the bullet. And with the older cars, certainly, is it particularly complicated ordeal? It's reasonably complicated because you have to change the whole dashboard panel. You know, on DB456, it's one steel panel that we have to take out and change it across, change the racks, change the switch gear, change some of the wiring harness, change the pedal box, etc. So it's quite an in-depth conversion if you do it properly, as we do. I mean, I'm sure there are people that do it another way, but to do it correctly, it is a reasonably in-depth job. But if that's what's going to give you pleasure and give you the Aston Martin you've always wanted, then absolutely why not? Well, obviously, it sounds like there's only one place to take it if that's the decision to make. <laughs> Paul, it's time to think about some other cars. I know you're an Aston Martin man. I mean, you've mentioned that you started your own Aston Martin specialist business after kind of wrenching on your own DB6. Where did you go from there? You got involved in endurance racing. Is that right? Quite a bit later on. So from, from an Aston Martin perspective, I weathered through the recession of the 1990s and came out the other side a broken financially person, as many of us did. And ended up joining an Aston Martin main agent down in South London, who were in equally dire straits, to be honest, and we kind of joined forces. And I looked after that business for almost 20 years. And during that time, we were second and third biggest selling Aston Martin dealers in the world. So Good heavens. Uh, built a, a really strong team there. And at the same time, I kind of developed my own race team as well. And we had a lot of Aston Martin heritage racing cars. We had you know, the Bovis-sponsored Aston Martin Nimrod that ran at Le Mans in 84 that we ran quite successfully for a customer. 
and we had both the MCR Aston Martins and we had some Group C Jaguars and Benetton Formula One cars and McLaren F1 GTR. So yeah, they kind of sat alongside my day job. That's an impressive roster of competition cars. I mean, those are some important machines. Yeah, there were, you know, and and again, had a brilliant team of guys, including Chris Goodwin, who's now our high-performance test driver for Aston Martin. Chris worked with me on the McLaren programs and is a good, good friend. And it's funny how people kind of, you know, it's a very small world when you get into the world of Aston Martin. Evidently it is. That's remarkable. But then, of course, you came to Aston Martin Works around 2011 or 12, you said? 12, yeah. I joined in 2012. So the strange thing with, with Aston Martin being at Newport Pagnell is that they'd never actually sold cars from here. So they very graciously offered me the job to set up the sales side here. It took me almost a nanosecond to say, yes, please. <laughs> Because I thought it was, A, a fantastic opportunity to join Aston Martin. I've kind of gone, if you like, the opposite way to how most people come into Aston Martin. Most people go from Aston Martin to a dealer to going independent, and I went independent to a dealer into Aston Martin. And I came here to set up the sales side and put together a wonderful team, some of which are still with me today. In fact, two of my sales guys are still with me today from the original team that we set here. Basically, I started off on a bench with a piece of paper and a pencil thinking, how do you create a dealership and get it open in six months? And that's exactly what we did. So from a flat piece of grass to a fully operational dealership with every process, dealer management system, staff, stock, new cars, used cars, marketing, website. We did it in six months, and it was a fantastic journey and a, and a magnificent opportunity to do something that, that had never been done before, opening up Newport Pagnell to sell cars. That's amazing. And now, of course, your heritage showroom is the focal point of that operation. Is that right? Yeah, the heritage showroom is a really important part of the business. And we don't like to think of our heritage cars as just cars being bought and sold. We use the term rehoming. So quite often, an owner of a DB5 will come to us as, if you like, the custodians of heritage and the place to go and ask us to rehome their car because they do have this personal attachment to Mm -hmm. their cars. And then quite often, we actually put both the new owner and the previous owner together because a lot of the new owners actually really want to understand the history of the car and the provenance behind the car and actually discuss with the previous owner. So it's, it's a lovely kind of social part part of what we do. But we do call it rehoming. It's not just buying and selling cars. That's a subtle and hugely piquant nuance, you know, when you talk about the provenance of a car. And so often, I mean, it's one thing to track down the history and a few bits of paperwork and understand that thus and such a car went down through X number of owners. It's another thing to actually meet the owner and to learn about the history of the car firsthand, first person. Well, I think you're doing the Lord's work, as it were, in continuing uh, (laughs) to keep these incredible cars alive. I can't wait to have an opportunity to finally get back on a plane and come over and take a look at the premises in person. As I say, uh, just a look at the website is akin to an Aston Martin Museum. We'll be back in just a moment with Paul Spires. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're going to let you in on our secret. Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as 99 bucks a month. Use the code PODCAST, and you'll save an extra 50 bucks at sign up. So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code PODCAST and go to robbvices.com. 
And we're back on the Cars That Matter with my guest, Paul Spires. Paul, you only work on Aston Martins and Lagondas there. Is that, is that correct? If somebody brings you a Jaguar or a Rolls Royce, it's, it's not going <laughs> to find any service. No, that's absolutely right. We only work on Aston Martins, apart from at the moment, because we're actually supporting the National Health Service, doctors and nurses, with their cars at the moment. As you're probably aware, they're, they're doing a fantastic job looking after people in our community. And so we, we wanted to support them. A lot of them run older cars that they would take either to their friends to have them repaired or to a little garage, all of which are now not available to them because of the shutdown period. So we're actually maintaining their cars free of charge for them. So I walked through the workshop earlier on and there was an Audi and I think a Daewoo in the workshop that our technicians work on. And again, it's it's lovely because the guys are all volunteering. They really want to give something back to the community that the, the doctors and nurses are doing such a fantastic job in the UK, keeping everybody alive. And the least we can do is to keep their cars alive and allow them to reliably go, go back and forwards to hospital. Paul, what a wonderful story. That's incredibly heartwarming. And that's definitely a very special footnote for these very special times. Paul, I always like to ask our guests about their own personal interest in cars, apart from the subject at hand. Imagine you discovered a bottle on a beach and inside was a genie and you got three car wishes granted. What are the three cars you'd want to put in your garage? It's an odd one, and it's a Marmite car, but I absolutely love V8 Zagato, <laughs> the one that we built in the 1980s. Yes. I've driven plenty of them, and I remember the very first time I drove one, it was such a different car to the standard X-Pack that I'd sold lots and lots of, and I drove this car, and I thought, my God, this is just such a rocket ship compared to the standard car, though it had the same engine. And for people who don't know what those things look like, I mean, that was Zagato at all their angular best. Yep, I mean, that looks, it's, a fly, it's a flying wedge. I mean, that, that was a proper rocket ship. I remember, as I say, driving that car. I think the first one I drove must have been early 1990s. My father had one on order, but never actually completed the order, much to my disgust. But there we go. <laughs> I, I haven't disowned him yet, but maybe I will at some point. Well, that's a great first choice. What about two others? I probably shouldn't say because I'm an Aston Martin man through and through, but obviously I did did spend a little bit of time with McLaren F1. And that, again, Gordon Murray's a, a friend. And I just have to say that car is, is an icon. Well, it certainly is. No argument there. That remains the kind of the high watermark of supercars, not just for the era, but maybe of all time. Yeah, and, and you know, I was fortunate to drive a number of them. I mean, the, when I drove the long-tail race car with Chris Goodwin, that car was so fast in a straight line. I mean, again, a really, really silly story. But the first time I raced the car with Chris, I used to race a Porsche at the time. I used to always have my belt slightly loose and my helmet strap fairly loose. And the first time I came to the first bend, I hit the brake. I slid <laughs> underneath the dashboard and my helmet came over my eyes and I couldn't see where the hell I was going. Oh, my God. So, so yeah. that's a that's an amazing bit of kit. Two hundred forty mile an hour car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so fast and a beautiful engine. And again, I, I met some of the BMW guys later on, and we had such fun with that car. We took it down to Spain and raced it. And Chris did a magnificent job driving that car. We had a lot of fun with that car. So I got a lot of time for that car and, and for Gordon because it was just such a landed from outer space. That car did. It really was a moment in history and not to be repeated again. No, it would never. It's, it'll never be repeat. Never be repeated. And I suppose the third car has to be DB4 GT Zagato continuation car. It's kind of got so much of my DNA in it for a start. I raced it last year at, at, down at Ricard with Patrick Peters in his series, and that car is truly epic. It puts a smile on your face every time you get in it. It's just such a fantastic car, and if people talk about Paul Spires in 100 years' time, hopefully they'll talk about DB4 GT Zagato in the same breath. 
Well, you have much to be proud of there. You're a very modest man, but to have much to be proud of because uh, recreating that car from essentially scratch had to be an incredible challenge and to have pulled it off as perfectly as you and the team did is really a remarkable achievement. I am incredibly proud to lead the people here at Aston Martin Works and, and the team that put that car together, that engineered it, built it, are just some of the best and nicest people actually that, that I've ever had the pleasure to work with as well. Well, obviously very dedicated and quite a family you've got, and uh, obviously a larger family of owners and enthusiasts around the world. And hopefully we'll all be able to get together soon and celebrate not just the cars of Aston Martin, but more importantly, the people that really make this hobby so very special. I hope so too. Paul, I want to thank you for your time, especially across the ocean, as it were, and for the insight that you've been able to give our audience, not just your past and your history and talking about Aston Martin Works and the people that build these incredible machines and keep the legacy of Aston Martin alive. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Many thanks to Paul Spires, president of Aston Martin Works, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.